The year is 1954. We follow a mid-sized tuna fishing boat along the calm Pacific waters. On its side are the Japanese words reading, Lucky Dragon Number 5. The sun beats down on the crew of 23, all Japanese, as they let out their nets. They'd been out at sea for months with a streak of bad luck, losing their nets near the Midway Atoll. Little do they know, something worse sails toward them on the wind. On the westerly horizon, a bright light suddenly surges. The crew stops, eyes stuck to the white-hot flash. Then it's gone. They look to each other puzzled. Seven minutes later, a pulsing roar rushes toward them on a heated wind. Immediately, the men draw their nets in, desperately trying to escape what they know is coming. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. One of my all-time favorite video games is for PlayStation 2. It's called War of the Monsters, and it came out in 2003, the same year I got appendicitis. One vestigial organ for a PS2 game sounds fair to an 11-year-old, right? Lucky for me, this wasn't any ordinary game. It had this pulpy 1950s feel to it. You could be any number of monsters, all inspired by some B-movies made back in the day, duking it out on a variety of battlefields. There was a giant mantis, a great ape, a reptilian, a living monument, a murderous robot, and a cyclops. And what made War of the Monsters a game with replayability was its style, this retro callback to drive-in movies and the creatures that lit up their screens. Both in the game and in those films, the monsters sprung from the atom, its radioactive mystery, growing in size and terror to wreak havoc on humanity for its hubris but something bigger lurks in their history. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed, few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. That was J. Robert Oppenheimer in a famous interview where he describes the moments just after the first successful nuclear detonation. At the time, it was the largest explosion ever created by man. It was a device so powerful it would change the course of human history. Less than a month later, the same technology would be used against the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Harry Truman, the sitting president, argued a mainland invasion of Japan would cause drastic loss of American life, and therefore drastic measures were needed to avoid this. Each bomb was detonated at a height of over 500 meters from the target. This was worked out by a British mathematician named William Penny in a report titled The Height of Burst of the Gadget. In it, he details the best height to maximize damage. Too high and the blast dissipates into outer space. Too low and the radius is reduced. 
In the end, the achieved height was chosen because killing more people with the initial blast would leave less to fight fires later on. The reality of the bomb would burn deep into Japan's cultural identity, surfacing decades later. The Bikini Atoll lies between Australia and Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Bikini is isolated from air and sea traffic alike, making it ideal for weapons testing. So much so that a series of nuclear tests were conducted there by the military over the course of a decade. Each test tried to answer different questions about the power of the atom. The effects of radioactivity were studied by exposing warships to varying sized explosions. Some were from the air, others were underwater. Some came in under their estimated yield, but one detonated at double what was theorized. This remains the largest atomic bomb that the U.S. has ever discharged. Codename, Castle Bravo. The crew of the Lucky Dragon No. 5 ran to get their equipment aboard as the rush of atomic wind brushed their deck. Two hours later, dust would start to rain from the sky. One crew member would lick it, marking it as gritty but without flavor. So much fell, they scooped it into bags with their bare hands. But soon the men fell ill. They set course for home immediately, and on their course they suffered from headaches, burns, nausea, as blood seeped from their gums. Once at port, it was apparent what had happened. They'd been poisoned. Physicist Yasushi Nishiwaki contacted the U.S. Atomic Energy Committee, begging for answers on how to treat the exposed men. No direct answer was given to Nishiwaki, but the U.S. did send two scientists to observe and aid in the recovery of the crew. Six months after being irradiated, crew radio operator Aikichi Kuboyami died. His last words were, I pray that I am the last victim of an atomic or hydrogen bomb. Japanese film producer Tomoyuki Tanaka was on his way back from Jakarta trying to salvage an Indo-Japanese joint project when the idea hit him. Just a few months before, the Lucky Dragon had met its fate not too far from where he was flying. The scores of tuna caught afterward were poured over with Geiger counters, and the sails plummeted. When Tanaka landed, he immediately called a fellow producer and pitched him a film he would call Codename G. This film was to speak to the fear of the atomic age, the power of the bomb. The fear had gestated in Japanese culture for over a decade, and he would say, the theme of the film from the beginning was the terror of the bomb. Mankind had created the bomb, and now nature was going to take revenge on mankind. This revenge, the personification of the people's fear, would tower over the nations of the world and cast a shadow that still reaches us to this day. Codename G, as in giant, would go through several alterations before being christened as a portmanteau of gorilla 
and whale in Japanese, or Gojira. A monster awakened during a nuclear test in the Pacific Ocean, breathing fire upon its prey and leaving destruction in its wake. This godlike creature was to be the bomb, laying waste to its world. The opening of the film depicts a fishing vessel caught in the wake of a nuclear blast, only to disappear on their return journey, victims of a shadowy fate. Due to budget constraints, the studio could not pursue the claymation style they wished to use to depict the monster. Instead, they chose what became known as suitmation. A costume was carefully constructed out of wire meshing, bamboo, and heavy latex. Other rubber was added to give its skin a reptilian texture. Two performers were chosen, Hario Nakajimi and Katsumi Tezuka. At first, the suit was too heavy to move in, so another had to be constructed, but Nakajima could only wear the suit for three minutes before passing out from air loss. After all of this agonizing effort, the film was released in November of 1954. Initially, Japanese critics lambasted the film for being too outrageous and unbelievable. But after the box office numbers rose, they changed their tune. It was the eighth highest growing film that year in Japan and soon got an American release, which added extra scenes with an American reporter basically narrating what was happening. The monster, born from tragedy, would go on to star in dozens of films, become a worldwide cultural icon, with more movies scheduled for release in coming years. The name Gojira quickly morphed into its form we all recognize today. Godzilla. We mustn't forget why Godzilla was created, to remind us. He is a reminder that mankind has created a weapon bigger than any other. We are the only species with the capability to wipe ourselves and every other life form off the planet. We've all seen the movies where the government uses a nuclear weapon to try and stop some alien force, only to realize it's done nothing. I think that's because we need to believe there's something bigger than our scariest nightmare, because otherwise, it's just us. We must live with the responsibility that we are our biggest enemy, that we created the king of all monsters. (laughs) 